Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Proverbs, and it's taken from a variety of Proverbs, which is printed in your bulletin. And uh, you can follow along as I read it aloud. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I took a a Sunday off last Sunday, and I'm very thankful for it. And uh, our elder Fred was able to preach for me. And... uh, you know, honestly, I took it off because I was, I've been a little bit tired and I, I just felt like I needed a break. But what I was able to do during that week, I, I just mapped out the entire series through Proverbs. So we're going to look at Proverbs all the way through the end of summer. And uh, the, the goal of Proverbs is basically to make us wise people. You see, the pursuit of wisdom, I think, is a little bit of a challenge because it does require some patience. It does require some reflection. It does require us to maybe disconnect from our technology and the busyness of life and to just kind of think about uh, wisdom. And, you know, in our culture, I think a lot of us, we tend to gravitate towards uh, easier solutions. So we tend to gravitate towards how-to books or videos in order to understand how to navigate life. And I think due to technology, we have a lot of access to that kind of information. But what we are probably lacking in is wisdom, the this ability to successfully apply the information that we have to the various complexities of life. So... Proverbs is not meant to give us more information, as we've been saying, but Proverbs is meant to form us to become wiser people. A few weeks ago, we looked at wisdom and folly, the two choices, the two invitations. Proverbs is extending an invitation to us, and it's saying, who do you want to dine with? Do you want to dine with wisdom, or do you want to dine with folly? And what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to try to analyze what it looks like to dine with folly by looking at how Proverbs describes the foolish life or the fool. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at seven topics which have traditionally been called the seven deadly sins, but since we're looking at it through the book of Proverbs, I think it's probably more appropriate to call them the seven ways of folly. And today we're going to start with a big one. We're going to start with pride. According to Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six, which we see at the end of our passage, printed in the bulletin, it says this, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, and that means the proud person is the foolish person. Now, I think pride is, is a huge topic. It's one of those topics that touches upon probably everything in life. In that way, I kind of see it like it's gravity. Gravity is something that is everywhere. Gravity is something that is impacting on everything. And gravity oftentimes can seem like such a big force that it seems like it's unstoppable. But I think that's one of the reasons why we have to be a little bit careful as we think about pride, as we talk about pride, because we can easily talk about pride like this. 
yeah, I know at the end of the day, this issue, that issue is, comes down to my pride. And a lot of times the unspoken implication seems to be this. I can't do anything about it. It's just my pride. You know, it's kind of like saying um, the reason why the Twin Towers fell on 9-11 is due to gravity. Although that's true, it did fall because of gravity. Uh, it doesn't really have an, any explanatory power in terms of uh, helping us know what to do about it. It doesn't take into account a whole range of things that led to why a certain group of people would want to fly airplanes into several buildings in the U.S. and attack the U.S. And I think likewise, we can do that a little bit with uh, our hearts when we analyze our hearts. We can say, you know, the reason why this, this relationship goes unreconciled is because of pride. The reason why I work too much in life is because of pride. The reason why I'm so discouraged or depressed is due to pride. And perhaps the implication that of where we go from there is can't do anything about it. Pride is just too powerful and pride is just too big. Now, yeah, that's true, of course, but at the same time, I think if we leave it there, just like uh, understanding what happened on 9-11, it lacks the proper explanatory power to do what it's supposed to do, which is to bring us to a place of repentance, to turn away from our pride and to turn to the Lord and to experience the transforming power of the gospel. And so what I want to do today as we think about pride in the Proverbs is I want to reflect a little bit deeper about pride through these Proverbs. And as we do, here's, here's what I'm hoping. Here's what I hope the, the goal is. I hope we end up in a place where we can see the pride in our hearts, we can analyze it a little bit deeper, and we can come to a place of repentance. And so what is pride? Well, if you look at this passage uh, specifically, look at 15, 31 to 32 with me. Uh, it talks about the kind of person who listens to others and a kind of person who doesn't listen to others. The proud person will doesn't see the benefit of outside opinions. Why? Because the proud person thinks that their view is always the right one. And what this tells us is this, that pride has an overinflated view of the self, an overinflated view of the individual. And I think everybody here probably knows a proud person. Maybe you're thinking about the proud person right now as we speak about pride. You think about the person who has too much ego, and you look at that person and you say, I am not like that person, therefore, perhaps I don't have a huge issue with pride. Uh, but what makes pride so dangerous, I think, is it's always easier to see the pride in other people rather than seeing the pride in ourselves. More often than not, when we have an issue with pride, we don't see it as pride, but we probably see it as being right. The most difficult person to counsel is not going to be the person who is most broken in life and whose life is a mess. The most difficult person to counsel is going to be the proud, self-righteous person. Why? Because that person doesn't even think they're the problem. It's always somebody else. It's always some other circumstance. And they see themselves as the right one and everybody else as the wrong one. And that's why in 14.12 it says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. I remember, it's probably nine years ago now, because so, it had to be before uh, my wife and I were married. We were going through premarital counseling through one of uh, our former professors in seminary, down in Philadelphia, and uh, part of the reason why we, I wanted to get counseling through her is because I wanted to see how, I guess, the quote-unquote professionals did premarital counseling, and that kind of set it as a model for how I approach premarital counseling. And I remember when we were doing premarital counseling, there was uh, something that we disagreed on, and it's been such a long time that I don't remember the exact 
uh, detail or issue, but I think it probably had to do with finances, right? We approached finances very differently. And I remember saying this to the counselor that we had. Uh, I said to her, uh, I know this is going to sound a little bit arrogant, but honestly, I'm not trying to be proud here. I really think I'm right. <laughs> I really think I'm right. Objectively speaking, I really think I'm right. And, uh, you know, looking back, I don't know what I was thinking, but obviously I was probably pretty blind and disconnected to reality. Uh, I was self-aware enough to know that what I said could be interpreted as arrogance, but I didn't actually believe it within me. I didn't believe that it was actually pride within me. And that's how subtle pride can be, friends. That's why pride can be so dangerous. Pride distorts reality, invites us to live in a world that is actually not real. It's a world where we are the king or the queen. It's a world where we are the authority. It's a world where we have all the right answers. It's a world where our perspective is the only perspective that matters. And if you think about it, then it makes perfect sense that pride is this overinflated view of the self. It means that your perspective, your opinion, your voice is the most important and authoritative one in your life. And therefore, if you have that perspective, guess what? You don't see it as pride. You see it as the way things ought to be. Now, pride is dangerous enough without any help, but we have a lot of help in our culture, uh, especially Western culture. You know, I think West, the values of Western culture tends to pour gasoline on this uh, flame of pride that is in our hearts because it has such a high commitment to the individual. Western culture says thing, like, things like this, follow your heart. Be true to yourself. You see it in Disney movies. You see it in award speeches. You see it in The Bachelor. I understand people usually say these things because they're trying to pursue some kind of authenticity of like, come on, let's be real, right? Let's be real. Pursue your, be yourself. You be you. But you know what ends up happening in that pursuit of authenticity is we elevate the importance of the individual, we elevate the importance of the individual desire. We elevate the importance of the individual voice. Authentic becomes that which is true to me, that which speaks to me, that which resonates with me. And guess what that does? That just feeds the flame of fire to our pride. That's a dangerous thing, friends. And I'll tell you why it's dangerous. According to the Proverbs, pride and the overinflated self leads to some very bad things. Look at 11.12. It says this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. 16.18, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. According to Proverbs, pride will lead to disgrace, destruction, and fall. How? I could probably give you example after example after example, but let me just try to be a little bit broad and brief and focus on four things that pride has the potential to destroy. First, pride destroys relationship. Pride destroys relationship. If you want to be in any kind of meaningful relationship, then you have to know how to admit your fault, admit when you're wrong in order to reach a point of reconciliation. You know, the closer that you get to a person, the more your own uh, sin will come out with that person. And therefore, it's inevitable that you're going to do something inconsiderate, selfish, and offensive to that person. Now, if you take on a posture of justifying that which you did wrong, if you take on a posture of defending that which you did wrong, if you take on the posture of comparing, and by comparing I mean this, all right, I know I did this, but you did that, you're going to destroy the relationship. If both parties do that, you know what you end up with? 
you end up with a cold war. There's a standstill, and the relationship, rather than growing closer and deeper and more intimate, becomes cold, distant, bitter, lacking in trust. And if you choose to hold on to your own pride and to your ego and refuse to admit the areas in which you are wrong, irrespective of what the other person did to you, well, guess what? There is no hope for reconciliation. And without reconciliation, there's no hope for life-giving, meaningful relationship. And I'm going to bet some of you, if not all of you, know what that's like. Whether it's with your parents, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with a colleague at work, whether it's with a friend, you know that feeling of, I don't want to give in. In the end, you'll have a decision to make. Is it more valuable to hold on to your pride or is it more valuable to redeem the relationship? And guess what? Plenty of people will choose the former because they don't have the courage to choose the latter. But when you do that, the relationship gets destroyed. The second thing pride destroys is pleasure. Pride destroys pleasure. Now, I know that sounds strange to say, but this actually comes from C.S. Lewis's chapter on pride in Mere Christianity, and he says this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Uh, What he's basically saying is this. Pride is essentially competitive, and unless you have more of something, then you can't enjoy it properly because you won't derive appropriate pleasure from it. And that's probably one of the reasons why some of us are so unsatisfied with certain aspects of life, why we're so unsatisfied with our careers, with our salaries, with our situation and circumstances in life. We are looking around and we are comparing ourselves to others and we are seeing what we don't have and what we lack in comparison to what other people have and what other people uh, are flourishing with. And we're seeing how, you know, so-and-so is able to afford a certain kind of apartment or so-and-so is able to go on all of these wonderful, great trips or so-and-so seems so happy in the work that they're doing. What is wrong with my life? And you reach a point of deep, deep discontent. But you know what happens? The, the thing that happens when we're doing that constantly, you can't enjoy that which you have. You can't derive pleasure from that which you have simply because the thing that you have is pleasurable. You can't enjoy the career that you have. You can't enjoy the, the situation that you have, the free time that you have, the children that you have, whatever it is. You can't enjoy what you have because you're always comparing yourself to others. Pride, it kills pleasure and the ability to derive pleasure out of the thing itself. Now, I'll also say this, by the way, I think it applies to church community, and perhaps this is more of a, uh, an issue with uh, pastors or church leaders, but if we're always comparing ourselves to other churches and what other churches are like, guess what? It's hard to enjoy the church that you're at and the communion that you're at. See, pride destroys our ability, I think, to enjoy pleasure. Third, pride, I think, destroys us emotionally, and I think uh, this is actually related to the previous point. I do think there is a correlation between pride and things like depression and things like anxiety. The disintegration of community, the elevation of the individual, all of these things are related. If you can't derive pleasure from something for its own sake, it also means that when we don't meet a certain standard, if we don't have certain things, it tends to destroy us. It tells us we lack self-worth. It tells us we are a failure in life, and that's going to make anybody depressed. But what's the flip side of the coin? Even if you do meet that standard, guess what? You have to keep it up. And if you have to keep it up, that leads to anxiety. Because what if I lose this? What if I lose that? 
pride, I think, has a power to destroy us emotionally. And that's why this British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, by the way, struggled with depression himself, says that the ultimate antidote to depression is repentance. Why? We have to repent of our pride. We have to make ourselves smaller, turn and trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. And then we no longer suffer from the things that pride makes us suffer from emotionally. And last thing, what does pride destroy? Pride destroys us spiritually. Now, I know some people think that maybe the essence of sin is the breaking of God's law. So if I do something bad that God doesn't like, that's what sin is. But the essence of sin is probably a desire to be like God. That's what we see in the Garden of Eden. That's what we see when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. You know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned this story where St. Augustine, in uh, his book on the Confessions, he stole some pears from a pear tree, and uh, he's trying to analyze why did he steal pears from a pear tree. It wasn't because he was hungry, because after he stole the pears, he just threw them away. Why would he steal pears if he didn't want to eat them? And the conclusion is this. He wanted to be his own lawmaker. He didn't want to submit to somebody else's law. In other words, he wanted to be like God. That's pride, friends. That's something that all of us have to wrestle with because there is that desire within all of us. Where do we get our meaning and our purpose from? Ask yourself that. Where do you derive meaning and purpose from? Whose standards matter to you? Where do you derive your righteousness from? Where do you find your identity? The proud heart is going to point inward. The proud heart is going to say this, I want to be like God and therefore my meaning and my purpose comes from my achievements, from my career, from the relationships I'm able to be in, whoever I deem to be acceptable or unacceptable according to my standards is how I'm going to judge everybody and how I'm going to judge even myself. My righteousness comes from my ability to live a good moral life and my identity comes from the kind of life I can build for myself. That's the typical person. That's the average person living in a Western secular culture. That is a spiritual sentence to spiritual death <laughs> to live in such a way you know who else did that in the bible ironically it wasn't uh, the secular person it wasn't the non-religious person the person that did that in the bible were the religious pharisees and guess what jesus was very hard on them now why is this uh, western secular individualistic person how can they be so similar to a religious Pharisee? How can they be so similar? Because they share the same heart, the same root, pride. Now, who did Jesus love, conversely? He loved the poor. He loved the oppressed. He loved the broken. Why? Because they were the ones who often had a humble heart. They were the ones who knew that they needed Jesus with such desperation. They were the ones who knew that they could not save themselves, that they could not derive meaning from, from themselves, that they could not have built a life or an identity in and of themselves, that they needed somebody outside of them to come and to rescue them. And that is precisely the kind of heart that God loves and God desires. See, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is something that we see over and over and over again in the Bible. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like a child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. First Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Do you see that, friends? Do you see the pattern in Scripture? A humble person is not necessarily the one who's like, oh, I'm, I'm horrible, I'm, I'm bad, I'm, there's nothing good in me. The humble person is actually the kind of person who is not thinking about themselves as, at, at all. And how do we get there? How do we become humble people? How do we get humility? Well, I'll say this. There's a first cause answer, and there's a second cause answer. And let me give you the second cause answer first. One of the ways to get humility, I think, is to be in community and to let other people contradict you. You see that in these Proverbs, right? Most people probably don't approach, com- approach community in this way because they want community to be easy and comfortable and enjoyable. Giving other people the authority to speak into your life in an authoritative way and to contradict you is not going to be easy, is not going to be comfortable, and is not going to be enjoyable all the time. And therefore, I, I think it's very easy to construct the kind of community where we're physically together with other, other people and yet never experience the kind of community that the Bible is talking about here. Because you see, real community, I think, consists in accountability, accountability which basically means this, that you have uh, a sense or you are able to admit that you can't do it alone, that your perspective is not good enough, that your voice alone is not good enough, and you need other people. You need other people to help you. You need other people to speak to you. And if you cannot give up your own authority and allow other people to take that voice and allow that voice to be louder than your voice, then you're not going to have real accountability because at the end of the day, you still drive your own life. Your voice matters. Your perspective matters. Now, you know what pride is going to say to you as you think about accountability? Pride is going to say things like this. Well, this person is not really qualified to speak into my life. Well, this person doesn't really understand me and the things that I'm going through. Well, this person doesn't seem to have their life altogether, so how is this person going to speak into my life? These are the thoughts we have, right? Well, guess what? You know the only prerequisite for true accountability? The only prerequisite is that the person is not you, that the person has a voice that's not yours and a perspective that's not yours. And therefore, the humble heart will be the one that is open to others in community. The humble heart will have a healthy sense of distrust for the self and a greater trust for the perspectives around you. But you see, that alone, that alone will not take us to a point of humility. That alone will not give us humility. In a sense, you might even say you need humility to even get to that second cause and to be in community and to be accountable to other people. And so what is the first cause answer? How do we get humility? I think the way humility comes to us is you have to come into the presence of someone that is much, much, much greater than you. We have to be captivated by a kind of glory and a kind of beauty that leaves us no choice but to forget about ourselves. That we get lost in the beauty and the glory of something outside of ourselves that, guess what, we actually end up forgetting ourselves entirely. How does that happen? Well, it happens like this. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you the person and the work of Christ in such a way that we are just left in awe. I think that's what Fred preached last week, right? The work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Reveals the beauty, the glory, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. 
so that we would be left in a place of awe. You know, Jesus died on the cross for our redemption and our salvation, but what, what does that really mean? Well, it means this. Sin no longer holds us back from knowing God. That sin no longer holds us back from knowing God in his glory, in his holiness, in his beauty. It means that the Spirit has been sent to dwell among us in the church. And in a very real way, we can experience the presence of God that the saints of old in the Old Testament could not. And when we get to taste that beauty, that glory, which oftentimes, I will say, I think happens in the context of worship and prayer, we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves because our attention is no longer on us. But we kind of just get lost in something that is greater and more beautiful. Now, if you're a believer, I hope you've experienced that at least a few times in your life, at some point in your life, where you have gotten so lost in the beauty of God that you just kind of stop thinking about yourself, that you stop thinking about your problems, you stop thinking about uh, your actions, how you look to other people, you stop thinking about your own personal dreams or your own personal disappointments. I think that happens when we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and the Spirit does something so amazing in that moment that we're just so captivated by that beauty. But if you're not a believer, I do think people who aren't believers can have this kind of experience of beauty uh, in a different way and in, in a, I guess, not in an ultimate sense because you oftentimes hear people describe that when they are in nature and they see the beauty of uh, God's creation or when somebody goes to a concert or they're just so lost in uh, a beautiful song. I think that's but a shadow of what happens when we come into the presence of a glorious God. You see, there is nothing more beautiful than Jesus who out of love for us and out of obedience to the Father died for us on a cross while we were still his enemies. And that kind of love, I think, has the ability to capture our hearts in a very unique way. And if you can dwell in that message, in the message of the gospel, and if you can dwell in the presence of God, humility comes. Humility comes, friends. I'm going to end with this story. Um, Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may know him. He was a very well-known preacher in the 1800s. A lot of modern-day preachers are probably influenced by him and uh, quote him often. Charles Spurgeon, uh, perhaps you're not aware, also struggled with deep depression throughout his life. One of the reasons for that, although not the only reason why he struggled with depression in his life, is because when he was a young man, when he was a preacher in his early 20s, something uh, heartbreaking happened um, while he preached. You know, he's in his 20s, he's preaching to several thousands of people, and in the 1800s, I can't even imagine what that's like, but he's preaching to several thousand people, and someone in the crowd uh, wants to pull a prank and yells, Fire! Fire! And what happens? Well, panic ensues. The crowd of people, they're all rushing to get out and to escape this fire that is non-existent. And as people are rushing to get out, people are getting trampled on the ground. And at the end of that, seven people ended up dying because of that prank. Now, of course, uh, that's not necessarily Spurgeon's fault, uh, but the media, the London newspaper, blamed him for the incident. Spurgeon himself felt very responsible for what had happened 
and it brought him to some really dark places. As he's wrestling with his own depression, you know what passage uh, he would say he derived the most comfort from, the most relief uh, to his depression? Philippians 2, which by the way also talks about humility. And the part that really overwhelmed him and brought him to tears was the part that says this. Philippians 2, 5, Have this bind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we don't know why that passage meant so much to him or why that helped him so much in his moments of darkness and depression. But if I were to take a guess, I would say this that passage probably helped him see the overwhelming beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, especially in light of the work of the cross. And when Jesus' beauty overwhelmed him, he stopped thinking about himself, about his problems, about what happened in the past, about the regrets that he had, and he became lost in something that was greater I think God showed him grace and gave him humility. Now, of course, he probably waned back and forth and felt that darkness and depression again. But I think one of the, the hopes that a Christian has is there will be a day in the new heaven and the new earth where that greatness and that beauty will be revealed to such a degree where we will all be worshiping, where we will all be captivated by the glory and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ every single day at every single moment, where our thoughts will not be upon ourselves, where there will be no tears, no death, no sin. That will be the Christian hope. But until then, what do we do? Do you struggle with pride? Sure you do. (laughs) We all do. What do we do? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in worship, in prayer. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in worship and in prayer. And as the Spirit reveals Christ to us, then surely we will make less of ourselves and we will see the greatness of God. And that will be uh, the true antidote, the true solution to our deepest pride. No therapist is going to tell you that, friends. (laughs) That's not going to seem practical in the moment, friends. But I think that's what we need. Let's pray together.